As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, this is the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wozencroft, and it's a perplexing day, to say the least, for most football fans. England did their usual pre-tournament thing and beat the best team in the world. Scotland are undefeated in over a year. Liverpool and Manchester United look to hijack football as we know it. And we're about to be charged £14.95 to watch and experience it all in the middle of a pandemic-induced recession. Questions to be answered, to say the least. Just another day in the life of Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark, who joined me this morning. Hello, guys. Hello, Hugh. I'm trying to be uh, very excited and enthusiastic this morning after you slagged off my um, welcome the other day on the show, said I sounded too tired. So, (laughs) hi, how's it going? (laughs) Morning. Good morning. You should, you should morning. come to this with, with with some verve. You know that the world gets to hear you talk about football. You're in a privileged position, and you get to see me. I mean, what That's more true. do you want, frankly, That's on true. a Monday morning? It's a great start um, to the week. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Listen, I'm always smiling, so I just expect other people should be like me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What can I say? <laughs> um, look, there's plenty for us to talk about. We're going to check in with the Times, Molly Hudson, a little bit later on as well, talking about the Women's Super League. But we're going to start by catching up with our chief football writer Henry Winter I asked him about a story you're going to see across the back pages Uh, project big picture big reform plans coming from the top teams in the Premier League it affects the football pyramid in England as a whole as well we'll get the details on that shortly but I started by asking Henry about Sunday evening at Wembley England managing to beat the world's number one side Belgium two goals to one in Nations League action as England seem to, to always do on the build-up to a big tournament, we've beaten the best side in the world to obviously get hopes as high as possible before their inevitable uh, group stage exit. Um, but what did you make of Sunday evening at Wembley? England uh, beating the world's number one side in the shape of Belgium in the Nations League. I think the good thing about Gareth Southgate now, and, and particularly with his players, is that they don't get carried away. No one was coming out and saying afterwards that we've beaten the, the world's number one, Belgium, the team of De Bruyne and Lukaku. We're going to storm through the Euros will be back here for the final at Wembley uh, next summer. I think there's a bit of humility, born quite rightly through years of painful experience. I think it's the message that Southgate wants to send out. It's sort of the, always the, the all-black thing. It's all about the, uh, the team and humility and not getting carried away. I also think if you look particularly at the first half, there was no reason to get carried away. I thought England were 
poor. They weren't compact enough. They look it almost in a way it looked like a, a McLaren team with with players slightly in the wrong position. But I think what's good under Southgate, and we saw this at the World Cup, even when they weren't playing particularly well, and we saw it in their run to the in the Nations League last time is that there's a resilience to them, there's a character to them, there's a good mix of the, you know, the experienced players and the youthful younger ones, and they look after each other. They are very much a, a family. So whereas in the past we've seen maybe club cliques, there isn't that. You, know, you see someone like Declan Rice, West Ham, Mason Mount, Chelsea, obviously they, you know, they started out their careers, together, but there's such a strong bond between them. So I think, yeah, they showed their, uh, their character, but I think there's a lot of work to be done before you know, they're, they're going to get to a final. Very much so. I'd have to agree with you on that, particularly, as you said, the first half. This dilemma that Gareth Southgate seems to be pondering around the defence and around whether it should be a back five or a, a back four and, and the last few games it has been a back five, but it it wasn't functioning. It, I mean, it, it, Belgium could have played through that back five quite easily in the first half. They were getting players just running at the defence and, and, you know, especially Carrasco having lots of success. Does he have a big issue with his defence? I mean, you're right, Carrasco was absolutely outstanding. I thought he was probably the best player on the park with uh, with De Bruyne for, for spells and Kyle Walker, certainly defensively for England. Uh, I think it's interesting when you talk to Southgate at the moment, he is so wedded to 3-4-3. Obviously, England played a sort of 3-5-1-1 effectively with Sterling behind Kane at the World Cup. And it's interesting when he talks about it, because we said to him, 4-3-3 uh, was so effective in Seville. You absolutely took out, particularly in the first half, a fantastic Spanish team. You know, they'd never been beaten in their backyard for years. And England and Rashford and Kane and Sterling absolutely tore them apart with their movement and their finishing. Why don't you continue with 4-3-3? Continue with and he said, well, that's OK against certain teams, but I have to hide the weaknesses. And there's a pretty poignant expression that Southgate uses to hide the weaknesses. And to hide the weaknesses, clearly, is he can't completely trust his defence. Maguire is a good leader, but he can get done for pace. Dyer, I still don't know what Eric Dyer's best position, whether he's a holding midfield or, or centre-half. And last night, Carl Walker, as I say, was excellent. He's still a right back. and He was playing as a right right-sided centre-half. There's obviously Joe Gomez to, to, to come back in there. You know, England do have options at the back, but I don't think Southgate completely trusts him. So that's why he wants a three. Plus also you look at, you know, playing against one of the best teams, well, the best team in the world in terms of ranking. He then goes and plays two essentially holding defensive midfielders in, in Declan Rice and Jordan Henderson. So, you know, you look at that. It was interesting talking to one of the players last night. He described it as a back five. He, he wasn't having any of this wingback stuff. He was saying that was a back five. And then two in front of him. You've effectively got a block of seven there or five plus two. Um, so I think that's Southgate's caution. And I think even though he's got some maverick talents on the bench, Jack Grealish particularly, I think he'll be, he'll be cautious and he'll want to one nil all his way to the final next year. That's interesting because I know a lot of England fans and I'm probably one of them would be screaming out for Jack Grealish to start every single game. Even Phil Foden, if he comes back into the reckoning, I think would, would be a starter for me because I think there's a lack of creativity. And you talk about a back seven and being able to hide the weaknesses, but we, we didn't hide any of the weaknesses. It was quite apparent where the weaknesses were, even with the seven. So why not try and take the game to other teams and why not have an element of creativity in there in particular? Um, you know, people talk about Mason Mount, for example. I know he got a deflected winner last night, but but 
Southgate seems to constantly back him, tries to turn the conversation away from the likes of Jack Grealish. Well, why do you think that is? Out of possession. I think Mason Mount does give you more. He will track back. He will cover. Jack Grealish is, is, is a wonderful maverick talent. He gives you something extra. I mean, the comparisons with Gaza are, are annoying for Grealish, Southgate and everyone associated with England. But what he does give you, and there are echoes, is that unpredictability, taking people on. And you know, Southgate was obviously at Euro 96, painfully at the end, but he will have seen that actually for a team to go far, they are going to need a little bit of a game breaker, someone who just makes makes things happen and Grealish can do that. But at the moment, I think you're looking at a, a flat back five, you're looking at two holding midfielders, and then you're looking at a front line of Sterling, Kane and Rashford. Now, the problem that Grealish has got is that if his best position, as we've seen at Aston Villa, is not as a 10, it's, it's coming in from the, uh, the left and Rashford's not going to give up that place easily, and rightly so. Interesting. I don't know if if that should really be Marcus Rashford's decision. You know, you've got Sterling there as well. I, I, look, we could You're talk... You're not going to drop Marcus Rashford. You, you are not going to drop Marcus Rashford. I think that England front line is as good an attack as pretty much anyone in the top three in the world. So, uh, listen, we're talking about two players that didn't play play last night if we're talking about Grealish and, and Sterling. But if Sterling is best position is on the left... Is it does where does Marcus Rashford go on the right, and where does Jaden Sancho go? And look, this is a great dilemma for England to have. But would you, you know, it's difficult for me, given his club form, to think that if everyone is 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 back and fit and healthy and ready to go, that Rashford is in England starting eleven. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think you probably are from <laughs> from Southgate's perspective. With great respect, I think he's starting his front three will absolutely be Rashford on the left, Sterling on the right. Look, Sterling's so versatile. We've seen players of four to nine. We've seen players of ten. We've seen players as centre forward. I mean, he's he can play anywhere across that front three, and obviously Harry Kane, the captain in the middle, that's sort of non-negotiable. So those three, that is actually the one settled area of the of the England team that you know that you know that Jaden Sancho is a fantastic option to come off the bench bench Grealish and Foden obviously give you something uh, different as as well teams develop during tournaments mm. and it might be that Rashford starts the Euros and Grealish finishes it but at the moment I think the way and you can't divorce in Southgate's mind what Rashford's doing off the pitch with what he's doing on the pitch as well. That Southgate's so big on that. He keeps on talking about good citizens, good citizens. And Rashford is absolutely the embodiment of that. And I was slightly surprised in, in one of the games that he wasn't captain um, because of the, not simply because of the MBE, but I think because of the message that he sends out. And if you look at Rashford and if you look at him and how he delivers in pressure moments, PSG for Manchester United um, and obviously the, the penalty yesterday he's, he's, he's a pretty impressive individual as a footballer as well as a person um, so yeah look, I will definitely fight Marcus Rashford's corner on his starting mm -hmm. qualities let's talk project big picture then move away from England I'll be outlining the details within in a few moments time you've been speaking about this already the radical reform proposals that would would see the top flight cut to 18 teams, the League Cup go, the Community Shield go as well as among, uh, among a raft of, of other changes. What did, what did you make of all of it? I feel it was embarrassing. I've, I'm surprised Rick Parry isn't being pushed close to resignation. I think there'll be civil war within the uh, Premier League. If you are Leeds United and you fought your way up, 
if you are Aston Villa and you've invested judiciously and you've just put seven past Liverpool, who are one of the big um, masterminds, as it as it were, Bond style of uh, of project, of this daft project, Operation Avarice, as we're calling it. Um, then I think you know you, you're just saying, what on earth are they doing? What on earth? I mean, English football cannot be run by Joel Glazer. I don't really want Joel Glazer running Manchester United. I just think that he's he's all about the money. So he's going to give money up front to the EFL, him and John Henry at Liverpool. You know what? It's not actually all their own money. That money is broadcast money that should go to Aston Villa, that should go to Burnley, that should go to Wolves. All those teams that he really doesn't want to join the, the VIP club at the top. This is purely about self-interest. It's actually more than a power grab. It's just so damn Everyone said, well, what people are saying, well, listen, it's going to help the, the pyramid. If... The effectively what they're doing is giving the same amount of money that they're going to give to agents this year to the EFL in return for um, going down to 18 clubs uh, in the Premier League and also for effectively denuding the Football Association of any authority because the uh, because the clubs will run it now and English football will be run from Boston and the Everglades. Sounds remarkable and sad in many ways. But some people already alluding to the fact that, that this might bring about the fight for the European Super League, the thing that we've always seen coming. Do you think coronavirus and the financial impact of 2020 will accelerate the, those arguments? Definitely. I think you are seeing that uh, those clubs, Liverpool and Manchester United in particular, and fair play to their supporters, by the way, for coming out and saying this is, we should not be doing this. You know, there's some very conscientious supporters at those clubs who are aghast with what their owners are doing. I think absolutely we'll see it as a step on the road to a European Super League. And I just find it very sad that this is, and ironic in a way, that this has cropped up after we've had this celebration of the vibrancy of the 20 club uh, Premier League. When you did get Aston Villa's result, when you did get Tottenham's uh, 6-1 result, you know, the, that's what the uh, the Premier League is, is, is about. No one really was going to predict that Tottenham would get that result before. You do get that on any day an underdog can, can do something, as well as having this, you know, the excellence of, of the top teams. Um, I just think that I don't really see the logic of meddling with the Premier League at the moment. I don't. I think the uh, the owners and those two clubs in particular, Liverpool and Manchester United, are in a way very fortunate that games are behind closed doors because their fans, their conscientious fans, in the cop in the Stretford end, would turn on their owners and say, "Not in our name. We don't want to effectively ruin the Premier League and the vibrancy of the Premier League, just so that uh, you know the owners have more power." So look, I just think it's. I just think it's. It's embarrassing. It is greed laid bare. Henry Winter, chief football writer of The Times there. And you can read Henry's views in today's Times or on our app. Uh, Operation Avarice, as he's calling it. He's got some um, well, fantastic views on that. Great read. Gregor, Tom, let's start with this then, Project Big Picture. Um, there are some good points and some very bad points proposed. Let me just give everyone the lowdown on it before I get your views. 
Personally, I think it's, it is a power grab by England's biggest clubs. I'll agree uh, with Henry on that. But some of the main points, an immediate rescue fund of £250 million for the English Football League, £100 million for the Football Association. Uh, there would be a £20 cap on away tickets in the Premier League, subsidised Premier League away travel. Uh, the League Cup and the Community Shield would both be abolished. Parachute payments would be scrapped. The Premier League would be 18 teams instead of 20. At the end of the season, there would be a playoff between the 16th team in the Premier League and the championship team that has won their playoff. At nine clubs, as Henry mentioned, would be given special voting rights on certain issues. That is the uh, traditional top six in the Premier League, Everton, West Ham and Southampton. There are a raft of other infrastructure deals in there for football league clubs as well and various support um, lots of details within this but essentially the Premier League is firmly against it and the EFL chairman Rick Parry has already come out and publicly supported it uh, the, the question that, that runs through my mind is, we, we've already discussed it so many times on the podcast what could eventually ruin football as a whole, I think we're getting closer to it yeah, before we kind of bore down into detail, I just I the thing I found when I read this first of all on on Sunday was aside from my my blood boiling a little bit, it's just the kind of the sheer audacity that owners of a select group of clubs at this moment in history um, feel empowered enough to try and take ownership of English football in its direction. For forevermore, <laughs> I mean, can can you get your head around that? <laughs> I, I I found it staggering, and I think the point that Henry made about Rick Parry needs to be brought to the fore pretty quickly because Rick Par Rick Parry was involved in in setting up the Premier League nearly thirty years ago, which he stands by and says was you know one of the best decisions that's ever happened in football, and this is what brought us to this point: the great inequality and the sort of the creaking you know the, the the pyramids kind of crumbling at the, from the bottom up um and now you know that put all the power of football in england in the hands of 20 clubs and now he's trying to reduce that to six clubs and he's done it i i've written about the football league for you know for, for many years and and the number of times when the efl have have been accused of inaction when owners have been driving football clubs into the ground or ineptitude when you know they fail to uphold the rules, the fact you know they they always hid behind the fact that they were just a competition organizer, and now its chairman is trying to fundamentally alter the structure of English football without consulting any members, or he's maybe consulted a few members. And the other thing is, it's what's so insidious about it is that I actually think that a lot of football league clubs would probably support it because they're that desperate for the money. So we're in it. They're, what they've done that's kind of clever about it is that they're paying off vast swathes of English football who, you know, at a time of, uh, even before a pandemic struck, were kind of on the edge. And that's a payoff in order to take control of the direction of English football and sort of entrench their their status as the big six in English football. It's I, f I think it's disgusting. I mean, I find myself increasingly over the last few weeks getting more and more annoyed about the various stories that come out um, relating to 
the survival of English football and the pyramid and ways to solve it. But I'm going to try and stay fairly measured if I can. Uh, now, I think the the scariest thing is the point Greg had alluded to um, at the end there. For me, I think there are a lot of clubs and my understanding would be that there are a, lot, a fair amount of clubs who would actually go for this on the basis that that initial wedge of cash would be seen as such a lifesaver. And Henry obviously talked about the Glazers at Manchester United and money. And you have to think broadly about why you own a football club. And there are far too many owners within the Football League who aren't invested in their club in any proper way, be it financially or emotionally. You know, there are so many... My understanding is that there are a lot of owners out there in the Football League who, if they were given even a half-decent offer to sell their club, they would take it. And so this this deal with its finan- initial financial lump would be seen as such a enticing offer that further down the line, five, ten years' time, would be absolutely crippling for clubs in the Football League because I don't, I don't see how... The, the, when you actually unpick the details of it, I don't see what the benefits are um, other than that initial lump of cash which would bail them out. Well, they get quite a... You know, the... the the solidarity payments from the Premier League rise from four to twenty five percent in the plan, but the, pro- the, the so so th- there's clear incentive for these clubs to do that to 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 be in favour of it, because they you know if if Lincoln say look at the Premier League which is so distant in the first instance, but even then, you know first of all getting into the Premier League is miles off, but then breaking into the top six is like you know on a different planet. So why do they care about? What you know, the sort of internal struggles and battles within the Premier League. If they're getting a rise of what is that, nineteen percent in their in their annual funding from the Premier League, that's what's so insidious about it. So the, the most of the football league clubs are looking at this, going, "We don't really care about the Premier League." Are thinking, you know, are are kind of arguing and squabbling over about the direction of of football because right now we're getting money, two hundred fifty million, to save us to help us survive the season. And then on top of that, we're getting increased funding. And let's, you know, we could go through this bit by bit and say there's, there, that's a positive. That twenty five percent, a rise of that magnitude in solidarity payments, you know, it it begins to to eat away at the the huge gulf between the Premier League and the rest, and the and the pressures that that creates. But it's all built upon a power grab, and and the, and once the power grab's happened, there's no going back. And then they, you know, who knows who's to say that that wouldn't be eaten away at again? And you know, ten years down the line, they look at it and say, why are we giving these these clubs outside the Premier League twenty five percent? Exactly, and that and there are other aspects to it where if you're talking about clubs at League One, League Two level, and how they make their money, you know, talk about scrapping the League Cup. The only people, as we've discussed on the podcast before, for whom scrapping the league cup would be a benefit are the big six teams really there is merits to the league cup in terms of making money for clubs in the football league even if you take out the big six an opportunity to pe- to play against west ham uh leicester these are big name premier league clubs within the league cup if there's an incentive at the end of it for financial gain to win a trophy there there is already a cup competition existing in this country in the form of the leasings.com trophy the you know, the Vanarama, et cetera, the checker trade, whatever you want to call it, that football league clubs and the fans are already vehemently opposed to on a large scale basis because it's seen the introduction of B teams from the Premier League already. And 
that would be the competition that I think a lot of football league teams would like to scrap in favour of an, a, probably a better League Cup. But then if you think about it from that point of view, if you scrap the League Cup, FA Cup games, the FA Cup maybe gets more competitive because teams like Leicester, West Ham, that ilk want to compete for a cup. So it becomes more difficult for Championship League One, League Two clubs to pull off shocks. Another scary aspect of it for me was the suggestion of the changing of the loan system where Premier League clubs can farm out loan players. And obviously, as we've said before, there are ways for Football League clubs to make money is by building their own players and growing their own players and selling them on up the pyramid. If you're going to end up with four players from Man United or Liverpool at your club and clubs like of that ilk can send out up to 15 players on loan to domestically, you're going to end up with, you know, teams in League One playing against each other and it's essentially the lads in the youth academy going up against each other, you know, three on three. I'd actually say that they've they've been measured in their in their starting point with that too, because if you were to look at the number of loans that a Premier League club sent one Premier League club sent out to the Football League last season, none sent more than fifteen. And the rule is already four. But this is it fundamentally comes down to the fact that the power is, is gone forever. Yeah, that it's will a start, be their decision in future. It, it's so, a start. Yeah. So suddenly you get six and eight and ten, and then after that, it's you know per- they're feeder clubs, aren't they? Straight away. Per- personally, there's a lot of things I could you know I tried to take a bit of a dispassionate moment and say I could probably cope with the the reduction to 18 teams in the Premier League. I could probably cope with the end of the Carabao Cup. Um, you know, it, no, no matter what their sort of the reasons for that is in terms of. You know, a bigger, you know, people go on tour in pre-season and make more money or play more European fixtures, whatever. The fact is that the voting rights is the key aspect in this. Once you've handed over the voting rights to six clubs, it's not nine clubs because it only needs to be two thirds. And the voting rights for those things that even has, there's a line at the bottom of it, which I said here, they can, they can alter in a material way the nature of the competition. That says it all. The the rule the, you know the running a governance of the, of football in this country is in the hands of six clubs and who knows where that goes. Rick Parry's just been on Talksport. He says Project Big Picture solves every single inequality facing the EFL. It does a lot. <laughs> As I said, it you know going from four to. But doesn't it basically draw up the ladder? You know, it creates two two footballs in England and it, and it, it almost negates the, your ability to reach the top level of football and sustain yourself there if you're, a, if you're an EFL club. As I said, that's already there. That's what a lot of EFL, club, EFL clubs look at this and think, that's already the case. You know, we don't care about that. So the, 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 the redistribution of wealth has been the, the, the biggest issue in, in, lower, in the kind of sustainability of, of lower league and EFL football for decades now. So this goes a long way to, and that, you know, if, if you took it, if you took those aspects in, in isolation and you looked at the solidarity payments rising from four to 25%, you know, I think there, it says a 66% increase in contributions to good causes in England. Clubs get a hundred pound a seat to spend on infrastructure, uh, you know, subsidize away travel, all these things. Yeah, they're quite, they're, they're good. These are good things, but it's the cost. You can't you can't look at that in isolation, and there's no way that they're going to grant this without the power grab. So it needs to be burned. 
I think there's there's an element as well to the to the pulling up the drawbridge argument where, as Gregor said, that that has already happened a long time ago in some respects. You know, as a Lincoln fan now, even the the prospect of reaching the championship is slightly terrifying because all that happens is you reach that level as Wickham have seen this season and found it incredibly difficult. And as Gregor says, it's the redistribution of wealth that is the issue. I, I don't really have any, you know, aspirations for Lincoln to reach the Premier League. It'd be a good laugh for a season, but I don't think there'd be that much enjoyment to be gained from it. You know, my uncle's a Huddersfield fan, um, has been for many, many years, has been a season ticket holder. He says the least enjoyable season he's had as a season ticket holder was the time in the Premier League. Because, it, it, you know, there's there's delusions around what that means and reaching the promised land and da 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 And essentially, it's for that big wedge of cash that you get. But in terms of the enjoyment of football, I don't, I don't have any aspirations to reach the Premier League. You know, a friend of mine is also a West Brom fan. He says he finds it really difficult when they get promoted to the Premier League because he's happy on one sense that, you know, bigger projection, more money. Is he going to enjoy watching the games as much? Probably not. So this idea of pulling up the drawbridge I don't think he's quite right in a sense because the aim I think for a lot of clubs isn't to necessarily reach the Premier League anyway so as Gregor says it's not necessarily about oh they're, they're bothered about the Premier League because they're not they're not they're not aspiring to get there in the first place we've put quite a slant on the the, the thoughts and the feelings of the EFL clubs here we should actually look at the 14 clubs who aren't part of the big six because the draw, drawbridge has been pulled up on them as well at the moment the ratio, you know, depending upon how successful you are in the Premier League, there's 1.8 of of revenue streams to one. You know, so the bottom the bottom, bottom Premier League club, uh, the the top Premier League club gets one 1.8 compared to one, and that could rise to four to one. And also the fact that they would adhere to, uh, you know, align with the UEFA financial fair play regulations, which are far more stringent than ours, means that all those clubs that aren't in the in the in the big six, who aren't getting those those sizable the same sizable revenues, they can't even spend more to invest to try and bridge the gap. So it just further you know takes the, the big six further and further away. So there there's several ladders being drawn up here, but the biggest one is just that the power is gone forever. I am a Manchester United fan, but I'm from London. I'm from Northwest London. I grew up in Wembley, um, a five minute walk from Wembley FC. We, we um, near the likes of Hendon, Harrow and Wildstone, uh, well, Wildstone and, and the, the, the lower league football structure, in fact, the non-league structure, Isthmian League at the time as it was, was like a massive part of my football upbringing because the people that you knew, the people that you went and played football with at the local leisure centre would sign for Luton. And, you know, if they were lucky, they'd sign for QPR. You know, no one was going to sign for... Manchester United or Arsenal or, you know, Chelsea even for that matter, you know, the, the players from Brent, where I'm from, you know, Queen's Park Rangers or Watford was like, wow. And, you know, like I grew up with Jamaican parents and the story of John Barnes being at Wembley, you know, players that have been at Hayes and Yedding, you know, like that is the sort of environment that I was raised in, in terms of football playing and the people that I played football with. And obviously I'm a Manchester United fan, but like when I look at plans like this, it's like when we talk about Facebook or Amazon paying tax, an argument for, well, I should only play three million quid a tax a year, even though I made three billion because 
you know, of all the companies that we work with and all the money that we provide to an industry and whatnot. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's just someone who will never be able to spend all the money they earn claiming they need more money. I follow American sport a lot and I love American sport and they couldn't care less about sharing it around. They could not care less. You, you have teams based in Oakland for 50 years and then go and then say they're going to go to Las Vegas and then back and forth or San Diego and Detroit or, you know, they don't care. They'll take the name, they'll move the team, you know, they, they will essentially go where they believe they'll make the most money at any given time. They don't care. And what I find the hardest bit of all of this is people don't realise that American sport, and I think Henry and Glazer want this model in the UK, when they talk about materially changing the competition, it isn't just about who can be in it. It's not just about the money. It's about controlling other people in it. So, for example, if a player in the United States is arrested for something unsavoury, you know, it's not like they get the chance to continue their careers until they go through their court case and are found either innocent or guilty. You know, the, 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 the league just says they don't really fit with our brand, so you can't sign them. And, and their careers just stop there. And, you know, the likes of Jack Grealish breaking lockdown rules, they might have said, you can't play for the next season. I think the first thing to say is that is this, a, this has apparently been under discussion for three years. So Rick Barry... Has been was discussing this, and apparently, I you know only reported he pitched this to the EFL when he got the the EFL chairman's job a year ago. So, although it might might seem like this is really opportunistic, there were he was the plan was to to reveal this last uh, at the end of last season, towards the end of last season, until the pandemic struck. Obviously, now it does look very very much opportunistic. But I think this is a been you know, an overarching plan for you know under consideration for for a number of years. Um, and I think that the, there might be an aspect now, as you say, that the opportunism is that the government... I, I went to Cambridge at the weekend, Cambridge United, League Two club, going well. I spoke to their CEO and one of the first things he said turned out to be kind of <laughs> prophetic. He said, it's becoming increasingly obvious that the Premier League, if, if the Premier League are going to help, they're going to want to extract a price. And 24 hours later, what did we see here? He was talking about things like B teams or support for foreign players uh, flooding into academies uh, post Brexit, but what's what he what he believes now is good, he said to me afterwards is that you know the government were expecting the Premier League to bail the rest of football out, and the Premier League were looking at the government and saying what are we going to get in return, and this is this is this is a you know this is a, a line in the sand this is a, this is the the battleground we're talking about now, it's not going to be about getting fans back in because that's not going to make them any money. There's a bigger plan in action here now. It's about taking control of, of a direction of football. And it's, I just think it's hugely dangerous. Firstly, I'm delighted, Hugh, that when you take the Game Podcast to new award-winning money-spinning heights that you're going to remember the boys and where you came from and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, make, make sure we're up there with you in the... In the uh, we get a share. Great success, and we get a share. That's that's great to hear. But I mean, are you, you, you you're not getting a share now. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I wish. Um, but I think the the thing we keep coming back to is Rick Parry's role in pushing this on behalf of the EFL. And something we've talked about a lot is um, whether 
there's a way of getting more fan involvement in the running of the football league because what you have far too often is owners who don't have any real interest in the clubs and the people who suffer Macclesfield Berry in recent times are ultimately the fans you know they they lose their club they lose their identity they lose uh, a massive part of their local community and you only need to look at the football league across the country now to see that it's reliant on owners who have who be, being good owners being good people essentially and having a, some kind of personal investment in the community in the area and ultimately just caring about the club in itself if you don't have that then you're in big trouble as a football league club because you you're you know you're beholden to a, a an owner who might drop you at any minute and in these difficult times it's becoming increasingly tempting to just write it all off and go do you know what? i cannot be bothered with this because there's no benefit to to owning this club um there's no way of making any money why am i doing this um and so that's that's the scary thing to me you have all these fans across the country heavily invested whose lives would be changed forever if they lost their club without any say whatsoever and that's if we're going to really talk about reframing football that's something that i think should be happening through the football league is working out how to get greater fan involvement um in terms of discussing the future of the club and having their say eight of the nine clubs that would be the you know have the power although only six of them would have are are from overseas be it america china you know uh, and the ninth is uh, west ham's owners so it, it's not the fact that they're foreign foreign owners that makes them uh their, their motives questionable but it, as you say perhaps the connection to that history is not shared um and essentially in in man united and liverpool's case they're american venture capitalists so they want to get they want to get a, as big a return as they possibly can the desire to shoehorn manchester city into those nine it means that somehow Southampton get the keys to the kingdom as well. It's just perverse, you know, like a, a team that was in league one, what, you know, seven or eight, six or seven years ago, is it, you know, maybe a bit longer. Come on. Um, I mean, the, the other thing to say is that, you know, it, it, thankfully it seems that it isn't just us three who are against these uh, proposals. There, seem, there does seem to be already a quite a significant backlash in terms of, but but do they own football clubs? <laughs> so should we not kind of briefly consider what comes next then? No, because... absolutely, absolutely. All I'm saying is that I think this is an interesting moment now in that there there is such a powerful backlash of this is a disgrace against these proposals, but you would hope that there isn't just a complete dismissal of the idea of reformatting and restructuring the football pyramid because of this idea being, you know, ultimately having the serious negative of being being a power grab as we've said but I, I do fear that when you have the government and the Premier League and you know big commentators saying this is a disgrace you don't, you end up with nothing whereas some, something needs to be done doesn't it? I don't know I mean it, two things one is that there's been reports that Rick Parry has said if there's a touch of pushback to this then you can resign from, you could resign those big six could resign from the Premier League and join the, the Football League <laughs> you know, and he, that was put to him, and he said no comment. He, made, he decided to make no comment about that on Sunday. So that's one thing to say. Another is, I saw somebody say, "Why? What's to stop the other fourteen clubs packaging all the good bits of this and saying we'll vote this through, but we don't want any of the power?" 
you know, do, you know we, we mm. can say we can do that. We can do as much of the good stuff here, but we're not going to take power. And I think the answer to that is probably that, that that would be the start of the end of the Premier League. It would mean that the clubs would want to break away. So there has to be the, the big six would want to break away from a European Super League. This, you know, some people think this is the beginning of it anyway. So there has to be some kind of balance struck in this. And it's about having as much of the good stuff and diluting as much of the power that they're trying to grab. Gregor, there was a part of me last night and I asked Henry Winter about it earlier, about the, that European Super League. And I understand as a Manchester United fan that we would be in it. I can't really describe this without swearing. I'm not going to. But my views on that are, if they want to leave, they can do one. And 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 and, and that is because I believe in the English football pyramid. No, listen, I know you're rolling your eyes, Gregor, but, but let me explain it then. Let me, explain, let me explain it to you then. Eventually, there will be a European Super League. Eventually, there will be a league played Wednesday nights and there will be teams that want to be in the Premier League at the weekend and play in their European League midweeks and make as much money as they can from TV revenue. Why are you, why are you resigned to that fact? Because, because money eventually will dictate everything. Well, then we may as well just pass this through now because that's, you know, it's going to happen. They're going to have the power but, 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 and make but, but, decisions but, but, anyway. But, but listen, I'm not saying that they're going to have... The, the, I'm not going to give them power over the clubs that they leave behind. That's my point. If you want to leave, leave. You don't want to be part of English football, the Premier League anymore. Go. If you think your your economic power base is so great that you don't need the league that, that you, you came up in, fine, go. If, if Celtic or Rangers wanted to leave Scotland, they can leave. And if they want to play in, in the Premier League, if that makes them more money, or the Chinese League, if that makes them more money, then fine. In my personal view is, that's fine, as long as they don't control the other teams in there. Because ultimately, they can they can do and they will legally be able to do what they want in the future. My point is, as a fan of Manchester United, if you don't support the English football pyramid, you don't deserve to be in it. And I couldn't care how many trophies you've won. If you think that you're wedded to European football more than English football, you can leave, in my opinion. If you think that, that you're, the money that you bring in and the money that you make... Is, and, and the survival of your club, in fact, not even the survival, your club flourishing while others go bust is the way that you want football to be, then then go and play in a European football Super League and let West Ham United or whoever gets left behind win the Premier League title every year. You know, I would rather watch that. I think that I, I, I agree with the sentiment in terms of the uh, ferocity with which you're kind of you know passionately saying you know do one because I certainly feel the same at times I think that there is an element of where and Henry again alluded to this earlier where the fans of these big clubs will have a big part to play in this because perhaps I'm being a little bit too naive here but when you think back to the Manchester City owners and the people who bought Manchester City and been involved in them they talked a lot about the reason they decided to buy Manchester City was the huge following they had within Manchester, either when even when Manchester City dropped down the football pyramid, and that being a massive lure initially. Um, I do think that would have a, fact, a part to play. I know you said about you know the future of football being just beamed around the world without fans. Part of the part of the sell of football is the fanatical supporter being in the ground in the stadium and obviously we've talked that's a separate conversation in the current climate but if you if you went down that road that you've talked about there Manchester United Liverpool Manchester City would lose a lot of their local support and without that you don't you're not the Manchester City and the Manchester United and the Liverpool that 
supporters in China and elsewhere across the world are buying into. You're not the same club and therefore you have a knock-on effect of that your image is damaged. And if your image is damaged, I mean, God knows we live in a world where image is everything in all walks of life. If your image and how you are presented to the world is damaged, you become less attractive as a you know, a, a, something to invest in, something for people across the world to invest in. And so I, I don't, I think, I think even the Glaciers would, would react and would think twice before really, really shafting the fans who live in Salford and in Manchester. You know, th- there is enough already to show that that idea wouldn't get past a lot of these fans. And I do, again, maybe you tell me I'm being be naive, but that, that is why there are so many global supporters of Manchester United and Liverpool because they've been hugely successful over the last 20, 30 years but also because you look at the club from an outside and you go, wow, look at all those fans look at those fans on the cop singing You'll Never Walk Alone you know, look at the millions of people streaming into Old Trafford the nights at Old Trafford in the Champions League under the Fergie era, Stratford End, etc, etc like, that, that's been the sell that's why they, these clubs are global icons and that idea of go on off you go go and make your super league where you're just beamed around the world without anyone you you're seriously underselling what you could have as a product without without that that image and those fans i think and i think the backlash would be such that it would stop that from happening i hope you'd hope so you'd hope so otherwise Look, I, I would say you'll be naive, and I'd be a singing cynic. But it's fine. You can all, we can all become Lincoln fans then, and the, the world will be a much, much better place for it. It'll be fine. Listen, Salford City would probably be delighted. You know, the amount of fans that might exactly. go and watch them. Uh, if this were to happen and we could talk about it for about three hours to be perfectly honest we are going to move on but we could probably turn it into a special after that conversation Uh, by the way to enjoy more of our award-winning sports journalism including all of our writing on this topic then just subscribe to the times and the sunday times today to get one month three just go online search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Let's pause for a moment and check in on the Women's Super League. There's been plenty of action so far this season that we haven't discussed, but I think this is a good opportunity to do so. Of course, continues during the international break for the men. 
So far this year, we have already seen a raft of global superstars come to the Women's Super League. Four games in, let's see how the best players are performing. Earlier on, I spoke to a sports journalist from The Times, Molly Hudson, who's been focusing in on this, and asked her about the great start to the season that Chelsea have had. Molly, let's start with the weekend at Chelsea keeping up their great run and Arsenal with a big win as well. Definitely. I think obviously the game of the weekend was Chelsea Manchester City yesterday and I was lucky enough to to be there and to see that and um, just to spend an awful long time kind of squinting over replays um, as seems to be the the kind of pattern recently in, in men's and women's football. Um, disappointingly, kind of the, the biggest and I guess first kind of incident of note in the game was, was the handball award for the first goal, um, which was disappointing because we know that games, particularly in the Women's Super League with Chelsea, Manchester City and Arsenal so dominant, games between those three clubs tend to be really close and tend to be such small margins. And it, it did feel a little bit like that yesterday. Yes, Chelsea were the better team overall and, and deserved to win. But, but certainly getting the lead was was a kind of big slice of luck from um, a penalty that, that shouldn't have been a penalty because it was never a handball and certainly not, not for Ellen White, who was actually booked. Arsenal, big win for them over Brighton as well. Uh, will Chelsea be looking over their shoulder slightly at these? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because Arsenal have, have done so well in recent years when it comes to playing the teams outside of that big three. I think they're definitely the team that has really got into the routine and got into the consistency. Whereas, you know, both Chelsea and Manchester City have probably had re recent records better in the clashes against Arsenal, but have already both dropped points. Um, so I think Arsenal are doing really well in terms of racking up the points, racking up the goals against the smaller teams. I mean, you, you, it's hard to look any further than Vivian Miedemar this weekend. She she equaled the all-time women's Super League goal-scoring record uh, with 49 goals. And I think she's done that in 49 appearances, which is just remarkable. Mm, absolutely incredible. At 23 goals for them already, conceded just three. Top of the table, Arsenal. Everton second as well. Should mention them, four wins out of four. Hugely impressive so far this season. And I think it's a real credit to, to Willie Kirk and, and the team and the signings that they've brought in as well. Because, you know, two years ago when he came in, they were literally rock bottom of the Women's Super League. And I remember talking on this podcast about the fact that they'd just been beaten by Yeovil Town and, and what had gone wrong from a team that had had, you know, England internationals and players that had left and the kind of state they was in and Willie Kirk has come in and, and really changed their fortunes and I think it's going to be a really exciting season for them. Obviously, we know they're in the 1920 FA Cup final, um, which is obviously yet to be played and then obviously all of the cup competitions that are still coming up in the women's season. So I think they're definitely... Everton and Manchester United are definitely going to be really pushing to break into that top three and, and really add to the competitiveness. Big US stars settling in as well at the moment in the uh, Women's Super League. How are they doing? Because there's, I'm sure, a lot of money being spent, a lot of attention on those players as well. Yeah, they're, they're, they're settling in. I think that's, that's a good way to describe it. Um, particularly, you could see yesterday, Sam Mewis, who is a Manchester City midfielder, um, she has definitely settled in 
a little bit quicker. She kind of got her quarantine period out of the way and was fit quite quickly and is already becoming a key part of that Manchester City side. Whereas Rose Lavelle, who is probably the most impressive player of the World Cup from last summer, had her quarantine period, then she had a little bit of injury problems. Um, she's got quite a slight build and I think it's going to take her a little bit more time to kind of settle in. We saw her off the bench yesterday, um, but I think she, she will be a huge, huge player in the league going forward. On um, the future of the women's game, I did want to ask you that we last week on the podcast we were talking about clubs in, in League 2, for example, League 1, saying that they may have six weeks left still to go. We hear about the big names in women's football, the Arsenals, the Chelsea's, Manchester United's and Manchester City's. But will the women's side of the game face similar problems in the, in the not-too-distant future? I think in some ways, as you say, you, you hear those big names and those big names do in most cases provide a sense of stability that clubs in League One and League Two don't have. That when you have big clubs, they will always have a budget for a women's team, or at least you would like to think so. I think certainly in women's football, it's more difficult down the period, uh, down the pyramid. You, you look at the second tier, which is the championship, teams like Crystal Palace are in there. So yes, they have men's backing, but they're already only a part-time team. Um, Currently, teams are relying on a million pounds worth of funding from the Premier League, which came in just before the start of the season to help afford testing, uh, which is once a week for the women. Um, and eventually that pot of money will no doubt run out. And that is a difficult situation because obviously the leagues are run by the Football Association, who have had to make loads of job cuts and have lost so much money through the crisis. So I think the longer coronavirus goes on, and clearly it appears it isn't going anywhere, I think there will need to be a discussion in the not too distant future as to where that money will come from, whether they need more help from the Premier League or whether they need to ensure that kind of like the men's clubs are putting more money in. But obviously, as you say, there's, there's a lot of issues for men's clubs themselves. Our thanks to Molly Hudson from The Times there, giving us the lowdown on the Women's Super League. There are a couple of things we're quickly going to discuss uh, just to round off today's podcast. It should be a bumper episode after our chat about the future of English football. But one of the things, one of the other things that irked fans this weekend, £14.95 from this weekend to watch your team's untelevised matches on the box somewhere. You'll have to, of course, get a login and pay. Um, but that figure of 14.95 angered a lot of people in football, particularly as we've already spoken about the economic pressures in 2020. Um, this almost struck as one of the other moments that football is just so disjointed from the realities of what's going on in the world. I was disappointed to see it. And it was a, it was one of those as well that as a journalist, you go, did they think that this was going to be received really well? You know, like who who came up with this price point and thought they'll all go for 14.95 a game, even though we haven't paid them back for their season tickets yet. And they're currently still paying their monthly fees for that, even though they can't go to games. Very, very strange, Gregor. Yeah, and it kind of feels like again the Premier League flexing their muscles and saying, "Okay, we're not going. We're not going to have fans back in for six months." Government, the only way that the the people that you want to be able to be entertained and sort of have their spirits lifted during this lockdown period over winter is by them paying fifteen pound each for a game to watch their to watch their team. So uh, I think there's an aspect to that, and I think there's just an aspect of the the greed that we've become so familiar with and we've discussed it at great length there. We've already talked about football as a kind of dystopian 
scary future. So I think if we're really getting into it, let's pretend that, you know, football is a bit like Netflix. And before, you know, when you're sat there deciding what you're going to watch, you know, click a trailer, like, you know, before you decide whether you're going to pay. <laughs> All the games have already been played. You know, that, that to, because to be perfectly honest, when you actually look back at uh, some of the Premier League games that have happened, some of them have been great fun. Obviously, Aston Villa fans would have paid probably 50 quid maybe to if they'd known they were going to watch their team beat Liverpool 7-2. But some of them aren't, aren't great entertainment, if that's what we're actually talking about now. If we're talking about paying £15, you know, then there's not there's not great enjoyment to be had from it. Um, you know, I I watched Lincoln lose against Bristol Rovers at the weekend. I got it with my season ticket because it was a home match. But you know, had it had it been an away match, I would have had to pay ten pounds for it to watch it on a not very reliable iFollow stream. And you know, it, it it's not the same as being in the stadium. So you really are deciding whether am I going to give up my Saturday afternoon. I, I really don't I definitely wouldn't pay £15 for many Premier League games unless there was some weird dystopian future in which I could trailer them and decide you know see a few goal mouth, bit of goal mouth action and know that I was going to be properly entertained How about in this in this wacky world of a ridiculous number of goals that you just they charge everyone a pound a goal and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That might be a better way Every paying customer it. has to pay a pound per goal so you know you're, when you see Aston Villa beat Liverpool 7-2 you think yeah I've got my money's worth there uh, if it's nil nil, you go. I don't feel robbed, and there's you know, yeah. and who knows? Burnley, maybe even the maybe in the Premier League will start buying more strikers. Burnley might struggle, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean there, there aren't many. And I mean, look, like all jokes aside, it is you know all my f- f- uh, friends who are Premier League um, supporters were pretty unimpressed by this. And when there's already great pressure, and the other the other thing it does is like like with the other debate is it takes away from what was a very brief. And very, you know, in, you know, briefly exciting idea that we were going to have a big, big surge around getting fans back into stadiums. That to me is one of the things it takes away from is that you were initially having this great push to get fans and to get supporters back in stadiums, which benefits the fan and the club. And now you're talking. Now we're arguing about paying fifteen quid to watch a Premier League game, which detracts from that completely. Which is a great shame as well, as well as being completely disproportionate in terms of the value. Before I ask you what you'd pay for this weekend's fixtures, um, let me just say you should be using that fourteen ninety five to to pay to go and see some of the actual football that you can watch, even if that's outside the top seven pyramids of English football. Take your fiver, walk to your local club whether that be rubbish football in your opinion or not, and give them a fiver which they need to survive instead of paying fourteen ninety five to watch some of these fixtures. It's incredible as far as I'm concerned. Not going to get me um, much work at the Premier League, but there you go. Um, listen, looking ahead to this weekend's fixtures then, look, there's a Merseyside derby, Manchester City against Arsenal, Tottenham West Ham. I take it those would be £14.95 in your opinions? No. Merseyside no. derby is always no. boring. Maybe a quid. <laughs> Seriously, it's always rubbish. Like it's always boring. Like, yeah, one pound, one pound fifty, maybe. If we're feeling generous, I mean, Gregor loves Mikel Arteta, so he'd obviously pay fifteen quid for City v Arsenal. Obviously, Luke, um, none of them should be more than a tenner. If they're charging, if the EFL are charging a tenner per game in iPhone, then you know the Premier League's supposed to be this global product, product that you know is the most valuable league in the world. And there's no, I, I think. I think a tenner has got to be the tops, really. Um, Hugh, what are you and then paying? Even then, that depends upon the refund in the season ticket holders. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Hugh, exactly. Man United fan, what are you paying to watch your boys lose 2 0 to Newcastle? Newcastle against Man United is, is six quid, as far as I'm concerned. That's got um, Callum Wilson header written all over it, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. You can see it now. Harry Maguire and Victor Lindelof listen, looking at each other the, going, the, the, I thought he was your man, mate. Oh, exactly. No. The only, the only, it, listen, if they say Phil Jones is playing, I'll pay 14 because that is the Phil Jones fixture always guaranteed for laughs if he's playing in that but unfortunately I guess he won't be this time around uh, Sheffield United Fulham that's what four quid Sheffield United Fulham I'm a, contra- Ooh, I'm a contrarian so I'd pay 15 quid for that just because no one else will <laughs> no one Chris- else will Crystal Palace Brighton the, the, the non-derby derby I think you need to be paid for that don't you yeah. <laughs> again, well, we if I can find out what form Wilf- Wilfred Zaha has in beforehand, then again, I might part with a couple of quid, maybe. West Brom Burnley, how much would you pay for that? Again, I'd pay. I went just, too early, didn't I? We definitely the, need to be paid for that. The contrarian in me, and also I've got a good friend of mine is a is a West Brom fan, and that you know might be a chance for them to pick up some points this this stage in the season, maybe if they're lucky. So maybe I'd pay to watch that. The craziest thing is on the fourteen ninety five price point. When I said to my mates. If 100,000 people watched a game, you know, you've got a million and a half quid pretty much. You're like, I mean, that's not exactly electric viewing figures, 100,000 people, but that's a lot of money because obviously a portion of it goes to the clubs. Maybe they've worked it out and said, we don't really care if that many people watch it. We get 50,000 people, we'll have 750,000 pounds and that's a a decent amount for a game that wasn't even going to be on TV in, in the UK. But it is another sad day. I think for football um, but look if none of us pay it they'll stop so boycott <laughs> no seriously you know if you're really against it make sure you don't um, listen quickly before we go Gregor I, I said uh, at the end of the last podcast that Scotland would probably get knocked out of the Nations League playoffs and what a performance <laughs> <against Israel. laughs> I mean there were moments in extra time when I was genuinely losing the will to live but uh <laughs> Afterwards, I thought we might be onto something here. We could maybe like play for nil nils, and we are the best penalty team, penalty kicks team in international football now. One one uh, had one penalty shoot, one one. So yeah, uh, I think in all in all fairness, there is some uh, some positive uh, positives to be taken from it, and that we, as you say, it's a year since we lost. Uh, we're looking quite solid at the back. Steve Clark seems to kind of finally be. Even though there's all these cries about the fact that three five two, what is this mad continental idea? Three five two, how old from Scotland? He stuck with it, and um, yeah, we've 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 got a chance. We're one game away from the first major tournament in what is it, twenty two years? I'll take that. Yeah, w- w- what do you think though? Serbia is it? Yeah, I mean Serbia away as well. It's going to be tough, but uh, who knows? We look solid. And we'll win on penalties. There we go. That's a positive end to a very worrying <laughs> podcast, isn't it? Greg is so excited about Scotland. I never thought I'd hear it. <laughs> Me neither. Unfortunately, uh, the Premier League are also buying international football and Scotland won't exist uh, by, <laughs> by the time we get to that game. Uh, I'm only joking, guys, by the way. That was not a piece of factual news, but um, that is all we've got time for today. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, my thanks to Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark, of course. You can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the world of football. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game online. Thanks for listening. Back with you on Thursday. We'll see you then.
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.